Dear Lord, we just thank you for holding us fast each and every day. As the world moves so fast around us and things are ever changing and things are constantly moving, I just praise you and thank you for your steadfastness, for your consistency in our lives. Generations uh, from the past have been through turmoil after turmoil and struggle after struggle. And we just thank you that those saints that have come before us, that you have held them fast, that you have held them constant. I just thank you for that every single day that you're with us and that we can praise you in your name. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. We are well into our way uh, through our study through the book of Ephesians. And so if you have your Bibles, I would just encourage you uh, to turn on, uh, turn on over to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, and if you've been with us uh, throughout the entirety of the study, you have noticed, um, and we'll see this more as we go through our text this morning, but the Apostle Paul, really, the first three chapters, again, he has spent time just reveling in the glories of the gospel, right? Reminding us that in Christ we are a new creation, in Christ we are uh, saints. He, in fact, greets the church of Ephesus by calling them saints, uh, and they are not saints because they're so great and awesome and have things figured out, and they are uh, without sin. They are saints strictly because of Jesus Christ alone. That's the grounding in which they stand, and, uh, and they live in light of that reality. And over the last several weeks, we've begun to see um, the Apostle Paul use that reminder in the first three chapters, and as we flipped over to chapters four to six, we uh, see there um, the Apostle Paul saying, in light of the finished work of Christ, in light of you being a new creation, in light of you being a saint, you are to live according um, to the commandments of the God who saved you. And this morning we find ourselves picking up with verse 3 here of Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul specifically addresses sexual sin here uh, in, inside the church of Ephesus as they're being influenced more by the culture. And so Ephesians chapter 5 Starting with verse 3, I'm going to read all the way down to verse 14, uh, and then I'm going to pray and I'll make some observations. I'm going to spend, I'm going to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of the first few verses, and then toward the end of the sermon this morning, I'm going to give us just for verses 6 to 13, 14, just a high-level um, practical considerations of how we're to fight um, sexual sin, sexual temptations. And so, starting with verse 3, the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote these words. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes up upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become par partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing 
to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that your word has been kept pure in all ages. Thank you that we can come together as your church, Lord, open this word, and and we know that we hear your voice because these words have been kept throughout all the ages, God. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us, Lord, would humble us as we look to your word this morning and change us by your grace, and that, God, this local church would be built up in Christ, Lord, more conformed in the image of Jesus, having been here this morning, Lord. And and we take comfort in the fact that you promised to do that through your means of word, prayer, and sacrament, God. And so we're here this morning doing just that, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if um, we, we've been in this study for, for uh, uh, several weeks now, and we see that um, the Bible pulls no punches. Uh, the Bible doesn't round off um, matters of sin. The Bible is, is crystal clear about the way that saints uh, in Jesus should walk. And the Bible here this morning defines sexual sin in a very unambiguous way, right? It's not, it's not unclear. And we uh, live in a culture um, where uh, we are made to think and perhaps even buy into the narrative that the Bible needs to be redefined or the Bible needs to be updated or maybe the Bible wasn't clear or maybe uh, that was addressed to a particular congregation that's 2,000 years removed from us, therefore it has no relevance now. But that's not the issue, and that's not the Bible's problem, right? The issue is that in in our own unrighteousness, if we read uh, the letter to the Roman church written by the Apostle Paul, our issue in matters of sin, and our issue specifically as it relates to sexual sin this morning, is an issue of unrighteousness that suppresses truth, right? According to Romans 1... We suppress what's true, and in our suppression of what's true, we turn and we worship what's been created, and we cease to worship the Creator. And, and what we worship, what, we, what gets our allegiance, what we end up doing with that is we aim to, to protect it at all costs. And, and sexual sin, it's really, and, and this is no news to you, but it's a defining, besetting sin in our culture, but it's, but it's also one in our church. And if we're going to be honest, we have to say that the Scripture this morning, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 3, is clear in our text. And the Apostle Paul not only covers the entirety of sexual sin through the words that he uses, and we're going to look at these words in just a moment, but he gives us this Christ-centered approach 
toward repentance. And so let's look for a moment just at how he spends some time defining sexual immorality. Because in order to define sexual immorality, one, we got to look to the Scriptures, right? We don't want to go beyond what the Scriptures say. We want our conscience to be held captive to the Scripture. And we can look back all the way to Genesis. And I think a good place for us to start in our... Um, attempt to define sexual sin biblically, we need to spend just a couple of moments defining what it's not, right? We need to define what it's not, because as Christians, we acknowledge and we celebrate sex, right? Sex is not bad. Sex is good. Sex is a gift from God, and it was actually a gift from God prior to the fall of man. It's not something post-fall. It's, it's, it's a part of uh, the created order of things, and, and God um, say, I, I would even say that, that sex is, is worship when it's on God's terms, right? In a one-man, one-woman, God-centered, committed relationship. And again, this is what we see in the Genesis account. If you were to flip over with me to Genesis chapter 1, just the verses 27 to 28 there, we see the account of creation here. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And he said to them, and you know this if you've been in church life for any length of time, be fruitful and multiply. And you know what that means, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there we see a man and a woman, right? Two different sexes, which is a controversial thing to say in our society, but created in God's image. And we see God's blessing over them as, as a husband and a wife and an accompanying um, command that's given. Be fruitful, multiply. It's a part of the dominion mandate of subduing the earth. And then if we were to flip over to chapter 2, we see the... the we see woman being created there is documented. There's a little bit more detail. Verses 18 to 23, the Lord said it's not good that man should be alone, right? This is, again, pre-fall here. It's not good that man should be alone, so I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord and God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, right? So, so we see all the things that God's created and Adam's naming of them. And, and out of all these creatures that are, uh, that are roaming uh, the earth that God has formed, there's not a suitable helper. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Right? So we see Eve here, the, the woman, is, is the only suitable companion for Adam. Right? They're, they're created so as to, to complement one another. Right? They're, they're both created in the image of God, and they're different, and they're uniquely gifted to come together as a husband and as a wife before the face of God and enjoy all that God has for them, including sex. 
And the, and the reason I want to bring this into the conversation as we seek to define what sexual sin is, is at times when we address sex in the local church, it comes in terms of what's forbidden, right? We strictly speak of it uh, negatively. And for a lot of us, we, we end up developing fault patterns because of that, where we think of sex um, negatively. And, and, and the Scripture overwhelmingly so, doesn't have a, a negative view of sex, right? You could spend some, some time in the Song of Solomon and, and see that. But, but what has happened is we, we have perverted a gift from God, and we've turned that gift into a God, right? We're, we're idol worshipers. We, we've spent time seeing that over the last several weeks. And, and what uh, we've demonstrated is we've been more influenced by our culture on the issue of sex and sexuality then we've influenced our culture, right? And, and we may complain about the broader culture's perspective on sex and sexuality, uh, but the way that we change that narrative is through our own repentance, right? Not, not even by primarily calling them to repent, although we want non-believers to repent of sin and trust in Christ Jesus, but we lead and we change the narrative through the confessing of our own sins. We lead and change the narrative by repenting of our own sins and repenting of the way that we've thought about this gift from God. And, and then maybe by God's grace, we gain this platform to speak more with confidence into our culture. But we've been influenced by our culture on this issue, and we need to see that the way out is repentance. And, and in this regard, we're no different than the early church. We're no different than the church of Ephesus, which the Apostle Paul is writing here in Ephesians chapter 5. And, and I've implied one error here, which is the, our tendency. We could just say, well, let's just do away with sex altogether and just view it negatively. And we only talk about it in terms of what is uh, forbidden, if you will, in the Scripture. But there's another error, and perhaps even a more common error, and that's that we tend to nurture a very narrow view of sexual sin. Right? This, this right here is sexual sin. And so one pitfall is to call sex evil, which is to call what God has deemed good evil. But the other ditch is to be slow in calling evil that which God has called evil. And as we saw last week, that slander. And the Apostle Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's called us to repent of that too. So look with me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. The Apostle Paul, continuing just this very practical put-off put on conversation that he's having. He says, but sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, right? We see three words here that Paul says should never be named among the saints of God, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, right? Sexual immorality, the the Greek word underlining that is where we get our English word for pornography, and the root word of that, it, it literally means to practice idolatry and be unfaithful to Christ while posing as a follower of Christ Jesus. And so Paul, Paul uses that word, and, and the church of Ephesus would have that context in his using of that word. And then he uses another word, which is impurity, which means uncleanness. And, and that same word is used elsewhere in Scripture to talk about leprosy. And I don't want to draw too broad of a connection there, but, but if you're familiar with your Old Testament at all, you saw that people who had leprosy were to be put out of the camp until they were 
fit until they were clean to enter because it was highly contagious. It was highly deadly. And I, and I, and I wonder as I'm reading this word here, impurity, uncleanness, if, if Paul has in view and if the early church would have seen the contagious nature of unrepentant sexual sin on a corporate body of believers, if there's this leavening that's happening that needs to be dealt with and cut off at the root because um, we can bring people in to our lack of repentance in this particular sin. There's a spreading, contagious nature, insidious nature that lust has. And, and both sexual immorality and impurity, it begins in our heart, right? When we see someone stumble externally with our eyes, we can rest assured that they haven't fallen far, that their heart has gone astray for some time before that fall happens. And Jesus warns us of this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. He says, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, right? The, um, Jesus is quoting uh, from the Ten Commandments here, and he gives us some commentary, if you will, to the Ten Commandments. In verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, right? What Jesus is saying is that There is such a thing as looking in inward lusting, and that thing is heart adultery. And that's where sexual immorality, that's where impurity, that's where it begins. Not at the, again, at the external act, but on the inward meditations of our hearts. And and heart, even in the New Testament, means just this center seat, this control center, if you will, for your whole person, right? It's what, what, um, what, what controls our bodies, and, and our heart should be the area of focus when we're striving to repent, to come out of any sin, but especially sexual sin. Now, the, these two words, uncleanness and sexual immorality, they fit well together because Paul's using them to condemn all forms of sexual sin, right? Both heterosexual sin, homosexuality, bestiality, you name it, it's covered within these two words, along with the sweeping testimony of the Scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's calling out every conceivable sexual sin. And and the church of Ephesus, they they would have understood that. Again, the, the Scripture here is clear. It's not ambiguous. So we have this church plant. Timothy ends up pastoring. This church of Ephesus, it's not unlike our culture today. It was uh, planted in the midst of a anything-goes type of culture. And, and Paul, we, we see, both we can observe in our, our own culture, our own church, where we are as a nation, that Paul isn't addressing this issue based on just this temporary problem uh, in the church 2,000 years ago. He's, he's addressing an issue based on God's revealed will that's unchanging, right? He's not watching the culture and saying, I need to pivot and I need to say some things that'll be relevant now, but not relevant later. He's saying, this is God's will. This is the word of God, right? We see, again, I read this Matthew 5 passage and Jesus says, here's what Moses says in the Ten Commandments. Let me even make this clearer just in case you didn't get it the first go around. And, uh, and it's unchanging because our God is unchanging. And so Paul, in effect here, again, keep, keep, keep this passage in context. Keep the first three chapters of Ephesians in context with where we are now. He's saying that the God who has provided this incredible salvation for you in Christ Jesus, the God who's kind toward you in Christ, the God who, as we saw last week, has sealed you 
with the promised Holy Spirit that's preserving you until the day we acquire possession, right? Until the day that, that God in Christ comes back and he makes everything new, right? He takes all the bad stuff and he does away with all the bad stuff and, and we spend all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth worshiping our triune God and being satisfied in him. That same God is, is the God who's calling you to obedience now. And he's, and he's asking, and really, there, there's this implied question there, this God who you've trusted with these great things, right? Again, he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. What could be greater than our need to be reconciled with God, right? And God has taken care of that in Christ Jesus. He says, that God, can't you trust him with lesser things, such as understanding that what he's commanding you to do is actually good for you? Right? This, this is an issue of trust. Do you trust the God who you've trusted with your salvation? Do you trust him in your sanctification? Do you trust that his commandments are good? Right? That's a fundamental question that we have to ask ourselves. Do we trust God? And again, we say that we trust him with our salvation, and we come each and every Lord's Day, and we sing songs that, that talk about the glories of the gospel, and, and we spend time confessing sin and remembering who we are in Christ Jesus, and we pray to the Lord, but do we trust him? Do we trust him with our sanctification? Do we trust him that his ways, his means that he says he uses to grow us in Christ's likeness, do we believe that? Do we trust the commands that he's given us aren't restrictive? That's not what it's about, but are genuinely good for us. They're genuinely good for us. Do we trust that the ways in which he's given us to live really is the free, clean, conscience, abundant life? Right? Paul's telling the church of Ephesus to trust God with all things, including sexuality. And, and he's doing this by condemning all forms of sexuality that have perverted God's original gift or have taken a good thing and have made it an ultimate thing. And so it's, it's, we see the logic of the Apostle Paul, again, reminding the church that there's saints in Christ and then saying, this is how you live in light of that. And so, do, so the question is, do we trust this God who saved us? Right? Do, do we believe that this God is good? And if so, do we see his commandments as good for us by faithfully seeking to walk in them? Right? Because we can give lip service to those things. But what does our daily walk look like? Does our daily walk um, symbolize our trust in the Lord? So, so what's a bottom line, if we can, a, a bottom line definition for sexual sin? Just kind of give us a bottom line biblical definition. We have to define it as every conceivable, conceivable distortion that degrades God's good original design for sex. We define it as every conceivable distortion that degrades God's good original design for sex. And we see even more danger for us because we see Paul in this passage brings uh, covetousness into this list, right? And covetousness, it doesn't just relate to sexual sin, but he puts it, he tags it along with sexual sin in this, pas this passage of Scripture. But covetousness is this, this lusting for a greater number 
of, of temporal things that go beyond what God has determined eternally best for us. And it's this lusting for a greater number of temporal things that go beyond what God determines is eternally best for us. Covetousness is, is connected to sexual immorality and impurity because sexual immorality and impurity, they're like these eternal flames that can never be quenched. And there are these eternal flames that can never be quenched. They have to constantly be fed, exhaustingly be fed with something more perverse than even the last feeding. And as we journey down the road of sexual immorality and impurity, we find that we need more and more and more. And what satisfied yesterday isn't going to satisfy today. And we need to pay attention as believers who are seeking to, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, who are seeking to, to walk before the face of God. We need to ensure that we're not fanning the flames of sexual immorality and purity. And so a few questions that we just need to ask ourselves as we try to evaluate the meditations of our heart is, first is this, what are you, what are you daydreaming about? What do you spend your time daydreaming about? Two, what are you reading or watching? Does it, does it even come into your mind that the thing that you're reading or the thing that you're watching could in fact fan the flames of of something that the Apostle Paul is saying is, is deadly. What are you listening to? Here's one. What makes you laugh? What do you think is funny? It's another one. Do you nurture flirtatious relationships or do you put yourself in precarious situations that you know you think you have it under control, you think it's manageable, you know that you shouldn't be put in those you shouldn't put yourself in those situations, but you do it anyway. Men, what expectations are you putting on your wife and is that stemming from an addiction to pornography? These are real questions to consider. How are we fanning the flames of sexual immorality? How are we fanning the flames of impurity? Now look with me at verse 4 of chapter 5, right? Because sexual immorality and impurity even extends to our mouths, right? You probably, when I said laugh, right, you think, think of the mouth. Paul says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, right? This is the first part of verse 4 there. Paul is saying that, that this debased, moronic, coarse speech comes from a dull, sluggish, spiritually dead heart. And sexual sin does make us dull and sluggish. It makes our mind and our heart and our spirituality dull and sluggish. And our speech, as we've seen, as Paul's called out things in previous weeks, we've spent time talking about things like gossip and things like slander, but our, our speech, our mouths, our communication really does reveal the allegiance of our heart. It reveals the allegiance of our heart. Jesus says again, Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth, and you know this, right, proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, witness, false witness, slander. And then Paul gives a similar list in the book of Ephesians. He said, this is what defiles a person, but to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile anyone. 
this morning, if you want to evaluate where you are with the Lord, survey your speech because your speech is the tip of the iceberg. And as we saw last week, we need to ask ourselves, what are we really devoted to? What are our mouths devoted to? What's our typing devoted to? What's our texting devoted to? What's our writing devoted to? Because those things help reveal where our hearts are. It helps to reveal the allegiance of our hearts. Is, are our hearts captivated by God and His gospel, or have they been taken captive by something else? This is why Paul is saying these things should not even be named among the saints of God, right? Saints are not people that are devoted to the things which Christ died for, right? Saints are not people that are devoted to the things which Christ died for. We struggle with sins and temptations this side of eternity. You're not going to go a day without sinning, but we shouldn't be given over to sin, right? Sexual sin shouldn't be the narrative of the Christian's life. It shouldn't be the thing that's dominating your thought life. You shouldn't be enslaved by it as a Christian. And if you look with me in the second part of verse chapter 4, Paul does give us what should dominate our thinking. He says, instead, right, instead of of sexual immorality and impurity, instead of the, the crudeness and the filthy talking and the coarse jesting and the laughing at those things which Christ died for, instead let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. And and what are we to be thankful for? Man, if we've gotten through the first three chapters of Ephesians and we don't know what we need to be thankful for, we need to start over again, don't we? Paul spent this entire book working through the glories of the gospel. He's not giving us some list of moralistic chores. He's not promising some works-based salvation. And he isn't saying that your purity, your ability to be pure is the thing that's going to save you. Because God forbid we repent of sexual sin and we begin to worship the idol of our own purity. That's that's not the message of Christianity. That's the message of every cult in, in history. Paul is saying this is the natural outworkings of people who live in light of who they are in Christ Jesus. We're saved by Christ alone, not by our purity, not by our good works, not by us being able to to keep the Ten Commandments. We, We look to obey, we look to honor the Lord, we look to walk in righteousness because God said, you're mine. You're clean. You're covered in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to Christ. Paul, he ensures that the church of Ephesus, and and thankfully us as well, that we remember that if we're in Christ, if our hearts have been captivated by the gospel, we're saints. And it's gratitude for that, that that is just this primary means by which we walk with the Lord. I'm thinking of a, of a book recently that, that talks, um, uh, uh, I think the title of the book is uh, On a Comfortable Walking with the Lord. And, it, and it's not saying that the Christian life is easy, but uh, it's, it's a book aimed at walking in obedience in response to who you are in Christ Jesus. Walking with a clean conscience. Not walking with a droopy head because you've decided to take this burden that Christ left in the empty tomb and put it back on your back. So we're saints. 
you're in Christ, you're a saint. We live in light of our sainthood, and that includes the forsaking of sins. Now, now, for those that don't live in thankfulness to God, right, you, you, you find your, your inner man to be dead to that. You don't, feel, you don't feel thankful. Maybe you feel embittered. Maybe you feel self-pity. And, and I think a lot of times our sexual sin, uh, when we begin to examine the things that are connected to that, they, sexual sin becomes this, if you will, sinful coping mechanism because we're wallowing in self-pity, we're bitter, we're upset, and so this is our God of comfort. Right? And, and that's why I think there's, there's a, uh, the Apostle Paul says, use thankfulness, right? Insta- replace this stuff with thankfulness. Right? But those that don't live in thankfulness to God, they prove to be children of wrath. Look at verse 5 here. Paul says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Right? Paul's saying that that those who live thankless live, lives, right, who, who, who are devoted to sexual immorality and purity, they're not worshipers of God. Right? Again, if you find yourself captivated and obsessed with your lust, if you find yourself constantly hiding and trying to manipulate and figure out how to chase the high of your sinful, fleeting, sexual pleasures, Paul's giving a stern warning here. He's saying everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's scary. That's scary. If that's the the, the narrative of your life, that is scary. And and now why is this though? Is it is it because that God's not is it because he's not kind? It's because it's because God's not kind? No. It's because that you don't want God's kingdom. It's because the sexually immoral person, if that's the narrative of your life, you don't, want, you don't want God's kingdom, and you sure enough don't want God. God's kingdom is full of light. Right? It's full of light. There's no darkness in it. There's no hiding. There's no manipulating or hidden agendas or late nights with computer screens. In God's kingdom, there are no distortions of sex and sexuality. And those entangled in sexual immorality, they don't want this kingdom. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Anyone who worships what's created doesn't want the creator. And God gives you, according to Romans chapter 1, what you want. He gives you what you want. So for those of us this morning that are seeking to walk in light, right? you're wrestling with this sin, but you're saying, this isn't going domin- to be the dominating narrative of my life. I'm calling it what it is. I'm turning chapter and verse in the scripture, and I'm using God's words to describe sin. What can we do? How can we fight? How can we walk in light? And, and I want to spend just a the last few minutes, because I hope that, that primarily we're seeing this thankfulness, thanksgiving, gratitude is this means by which we fight, because it really is practical. And that's, the, again, the logic, the logic of the Apostle Paul here. But, but I think that we, we can pull some practical considerations, and this is going to be a 20,000-foot view, but we can pull some, some practical considerations from verses 6 to 14. And I'm just going to give you a, a handful of things. First is this flea deception. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I want to be in Christ because the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ. I don't want the wrath of God 
poured out on me, but we need to flee deception. We, we don't need to have anything to do with anyone or anything that can desensitize your heart posture toward the Lord. We need, we need uh, to, by God's grace, and, and Hebrews chapter 3 talks about this. I, um, my wife and I have, have talked about how illogical sin is before. It, sin, sin makes you do things you never in your wildest imaginations think that you would do. Right? And it's because sin is deceitful, according to the author of Hebrews. Sin deceives you. And if we know that as Christians, right? We need to ensure that we're fleeing deception. We're fleeing those things that, that the world, the flesh, and the devil can use to deceive us and to cool our passion for Christ. Flame the passion of lust and cool our passion for Christ. So we need to flee deception. I don't think you can be too extreme in that. Secondly, expose works of darkness. If you hop down to verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Right? No, no matter what the personal cost is, we need to bring our temptations, we need to bring our sins to light, to bear against the, the, the light of the gospel. Right? Confession to God always. Confession to someone that you may have wronged if it's appropriate. Confession to someone who can link arms with you and help you if that's needed, bring it to light. Bring it to bear against the light of the gospel. Right? Darkness is, 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 is where sexual sin will always thrive. Right? So, so we need to, to, to vigorously grab it by the throat and expose it in the open air. And again, call it what the Bible calls it and, and look to Christ Jesus. The next thing that we need to do, not in any particular order, we need to learn to blush. Blushing is a virtue. Blushing is a virtue. Do things that help you develop a sensitivity to the Spirit of God. Learn to blush. Verse 12, it's shameful. Paul uses the word shame. Even to speak of the things they do in secret. We should learn things... Things that are sexually important. Sin should make us blush. Sin should make us blush, right? And, and that's where it gets to where we perhaps need to broaden our definition of sexual sin, right? As Christians, we even make our definition of sexual sin too narrow. We don't blush enough as Christians. We need to be strict about those things that we watch, those things that we listen to, those things that we entertain, entertain ourselves with. And we need to ask ourselves the tough question, are we entertaining ourselves with those things which Christ has died for? We need to redevelop, and we can, by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we can develop, redevelop a sensitivity to those things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We talked about grieving the Holy Spirit of God last week. Right? You're not too far gone if this is your sin of struggle. You can through worship, you can through scripture, you can through prayer, you can through sacrament develop a tenderheartedness once again. We need to learn as a church culture how to blush again. And then finally, I would encourage us, verse 7 and then verse 13, bask in the exposing warm light of Christ. Bask in the exposing warm light 
of Christ. Verse 7 says, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? This promise of Christ shining. We're light because Christ shines light on us. An old Puritan, Robert Murray McShane, once said that, that for every sin that you think on, and, and I would add, for every sin that you expose and repent of, think on Christ ten times as much. Right? The, the only way to ultimately overcome sexual sin is, is to remember who you are in Christ Jesus. Be who you already are in Christ Jesus, a saint, right? one whose, whose sins are not counted against you. Jesus paid for your sin in full, and the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, and you can, by God's grace, cooperate with the indwelling Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to wake up, to gaze at Christ, and remember that His light, His obedience, burned up the power that sexual sin, that any sin has over you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you that, again, it's living and active. God, we thank you that you um, use it to change us. You use it to help us see Christ more clearly. You use it to help us see ourselves more clearly. Lord, we're not as sinful as we can be, but we're more sinful than we'll ever realize, Lord. And, and we couldn't do anything to change our condition, but you sent Christ who came to seek and save the lost. So we thank you, Lord. Help us to live in light of who we are. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each week we have been uh, on Mondays publishing just kind of a family worship guide as we're looking to help just equip you as families. And we're actually, the last three weeks of August, we're going to spend some time just talking about family discipleship and, and, and working um, to help uh, sanctify one another in Christ as husband and wife, to help to sanctify uh, children in the Lord um, as you seek to uh, help them grow in their fear and admonition of the Lord. And, uh, but one of the ways in which we're trying to do that is help equip you as parents or as husband and wife with uh, family worship guides that lead to uh, the coming Sunday. And so each week those are coming out on Monday and Sandy is emailing those. And if you are not receiving that email and you would like it, um, let me know and I will make sure that we get your uh, email on the list because we want to make sure that you guys are able to connect the rest of the week to uh, the Lord's Day and that you can disciple your kids. Uh, we are going to move uh, to the, what I think is the climax of our service, which is we're going to feast on Christ. And, uh, and we have stations. We have one station up front. We have two stations in the back um, where we are offering the elements to you. And uh, we do that at the conclusion of each Lord's Day service. And we, uh, our ask is that if you're not a Christian, if you're not someone who's calling sin, sin, and repenting of sin, and trusting in Christ presently, we ask that you abstain from this meal because this is a meal for God's people. Um, but if you are uh, seeking to walk in light of um, who you are in Christ Jesus, you don't have to be a member here, and we invite you to partake of the elements and know that Christ is spiritually present with you as you do. Um, and, uh, and so I'm going to read a devotional 
And uh, after I read the devotional, when you're ready, go and get the elements and bring them back to your seat, and then I will lead us in a time where we take the elements together. Here's our devotional. In the Lord's Supper, God meets with us in very ordinary things. It's the same with the sacrament of baptism. What is more plentiful than water? Bread is common, a staple, and wine is abundant. Virtually every human society has rejoiced in that particular gift of the God. So what does this mean? In Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people that the Lord is not up in heaven out of reach, nor is he across the sea. He is in our hearts and in our mouths. The gospel is not distant. It is not rare. It is striking that God did not give us sacraments to represent our salvation by means of rare elements like gold or diamonds. As tempting as it might be to hide our salvation away in a safe box, God has made a move in the opposite direction. Although we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, which is more precious than costly jewels, at the same time we have to realize that we're dealing with a different kind of rarity. What is more rare than gold? Well, to start, seeing water the right way, that's rare. Whenever we see water, we should be reminded of our baptism. And when we think of our baptism, we should see Christ. But we see water all the time. What should follow from this? We live in the midst of glorious wheat fields. What should we see every time we look at them? We should see bread, and in that bread we see Christ. So water is not rare and neither is bread or wine, but seeing them rightly, seeing them with true faith, meeting with Christ rightly, that is still rare. And so come with the prayer that what is now rare may become exceedingly common. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. When you're ready, grab the elements and and come on back to your seat and we will take the elements together. Mm -hmm.